Hey friends, welcome to Life Together Unscripted. This podcast is for those of us who are just a bit tired of everything that looks so polished and schmick in the world. Production that's squeaky clean that you know has been practiced a million times. So we are hopeful that you enjoy the unedited and unscripted nature of this show. We can promise you that this episode you're listening to today uh, was unplanned on the front end and unedited and untouched on the back end. So we hope you enjoy this episode. This is Life Together Unscripted. Morning. Hi, Jen. How are you? All right. Yourself? Yeah, Yeah, good. Wow. It's been some time. Um, Your hair looks different. I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. (laughs) Yes. I mean, uh, before COVID, I um, decided to grow my uh, natural color. And now I just put some other color, but... Yeah, I was just a little bit too too much blonde, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was time for a change. <laughs> it's a great change. I like. I wish I could go silver. I am. Um, I'm balding, but I wish I could, you know, reflect my age. And um, I think it looks beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's all right. It's uh, yeah. looks better than when you get you get your hair washed. So you're lucky today. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> I had a shower. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, um, I'm curious to know, like, uh, take me back to um, our when we met each other and or what you remember. Uh, What I remember, we met at a church a handful of years ago and um, I was working in ministry and you wanted to let me know about something that um, like a ministry that you were doing outside of church. And that was my memory. But what do you remember of uh, of connecting with me or or getting to know me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you already recording or? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Is that all right? Um, so just with the um, audio, um, you're recording the video as well? or Just the audio. Yep. Don't worry about uh, what it looks like. I just do. Uh, yep. Audio only. All right. Because, um, yeah, it's not really uh, photogenic for uh, for this uh, <laughs> Zoom calls. <laughs> No worries at all. So what I remember is that uh, I noticed you on stage. You were playing music, and um, I had I had questions because um, you know there were some couples were um, with um, Asian Asian husbands from Asian backgrounds, and okay. um, yeah, I thought that was there wasn't there weren't that many. Um, at that specific uh, church at the time. And uh, I was married to a um, Vietnamese Chinese man, Mm -hmm. uh, the father of my children. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I was very curious to to know, yeah, what your relationship with, uh, or, you know, yeah, Yeah. relationship with uh, your wife, how you met. And we didn't get a chance to necessarily discuss it. I think I discussed it with Megan a little at some point. But then yeah. um, later on, um, my memories are more around uh, probably meeting you through, um, I think, the creative team. There was a guy there that was <clears throat> Quebecer um, from Quebec, and then you were um, with him in this team. And um, so we had a, a bit of a chat in French as well at some point <clears throat> with him. And... Um, Pardon? Uh, yeah, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. I'm remembering all of these yeah. things. So it's, 
uh, it's Genevieve, right? It's a soft, soft J for us um, Westerners. Uh, Genevieve. Ah, that sounds beautiful when you say it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can try Genevieve. Genevieve. So are you uh, Canadian then from, uh, or truly French, Parisian? Like where, what's your background, your heritage? Yeah, so I was born at the saint Eustache Hospital, which is uh, just right up the uh, metropolitan Montreal in the province of Quebec in Canada. So one of the eastern provinces in um, Canada, there's um, some uh, smaller uh, territories uh, or states. So um, Quebec is the big one and there's smaller ones on the east. And then you've got seven, uh, six, six, prov- uh, six states uh, towards like the west, which is Vancouver. Yeah. And so yeah. Quebec is the largest territory of, uh, of Canada. And we've got, um, yeah, lots of territory in the, in the north. It's very, very cold up there, but even in the south. So we are 10 hours drive from New York. And um, I think an hour to, to our capital, Ottawa, uh, where, you know, Parliament is. So Montreal is, is a very um, vibrant and cultural uh, metropolitan city capital. Not a capital city, but, yeah, it's a, it's a big um bustling um you know french uh speaking big town and um, yes. big city in uh, in quebec and so the capital of quebec the province is the city of quebec yeah it's absolutely beautiful i've been there a couple of times it's a, it's an amazing city what i remember is because you did mention it's french speaking what i remember is there's a bit of tension because you've got some english speakers you've got some uh french speaking but um there is just a, a tension and it's a healthy tension probably, but it's like, um, look, if you don't speak French here, we, we don't want to engage in some sense. And look, that was my experience as someone who's English speaking, but can you kind of um, maybe, you know, f- someone who is native to the land describe to me what, what that mm-hmm. tension might look like. Cause I didn't understand it as much. Well, just imagine um, the, the, the relationship that uh, Australia has with their um, natives or the Aborigines, <clears throat> uh, I guess the French were not natives. Um, we have our own natives there. Uh, what happened historically is that, <clears throat> well, America was discovered by Christopher Columbus um, in is it uh, is it fourteen ninety two I believe and um. That's what we then say in the history were, books. <laughs> yes, and um, 200 years later, uh, the, both the English and the French, so Christopher Columbus was Portuguese, <clears throat> uh, the French and the English also had, you know, thriving governments. They were, you know, the centre of the world was pretty much France, and uh, it had been, uh, you know, the, the United Kingdom in the past. But France really was the center of the world, uh, I would say 200 years ago, but it started 400, 500 years ago as well, that, it, you know, they're just becoming the, you know, the, the, the thriving, a thriving economic force in the world. They sent people uh, to unknown ter- territories, and it happens that the uh, British, the English, also sent people at the same time. And so the English and the French fought for the Canadian territory, basically, and um, 
they uh, there were many many battles uh, in that's our history. So in different towns, different cities, there's historical battle. The, where I was born at the hospital, uh, I didn't grow up in Saint Eustache, but uh, there was a historical battle there where the French won, and uh, and so it's like this for yeah, all the, the different important locations where the boats were coming through the, the St. Lawrence River. And um, with that, well, the, the captains of the boats, they were French and they brought men in their boats, but later on they brought uh, women and uh, a kind to the relationship that Australia has with England and how they send their um, convicts. So uh, France sent their unwanted uh perhaps uh, women and prison and, and males like prisoners and also some unmarried women. So at the time, you know, obviously uh, to have an identity, you needed to be married for a woman. And so um, those who weren't married, they were sent there and then they were matched and there were incentive, like actual um, monetary incentives to get married and mm. have children. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I've, uh, sorry, I won't go down this tangent, but I've heard that, that there was a similar kind of movement in Australia as well to bring over some um, English uh, women um, to then kind of intermarry and that actually made the culture um, more legitimate, thriving, bustling, um, all the things that that did, it was actually quite helpful uh, in it you know, whatever in some ways, but look, I'll, uh, I'd love to pivot. I'd love to move towards um, your childhood. Would you describe that as a, uh, stable, um, instable, like what was it like growing up in Montreal and, and how do you kind of look back on those years of your life, you know, 10 and under and, or any of that? So I was raised in a suburb, not on the island as such, um, because it's a much older city. Uh, so, um, there's a different vibe to be being right, being raised in a big, uh, big city like Montreal. So, um, People live in suburbs, I would say, mostly, although it's very, you know, populated, highly populated, densely populated in Montreal. Mm -hmm. So I had a, um, you know, suburban, uh, quiet childhood raised in a um, blue collar <laughs> neighborhood. My dad was a milkman. My mother was a bank teller and they had three children. And after the third child was born, there were too many tensions in the family. And um, my father really had, um, so that was the 80s, the early 80s. And my father didn't have uh, insight into what it meant to take care of a family. I, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure he's going to listen to that. <laughs> Some of my family right. members may. Mm -hmm. But he had... Um, year 10 um education uh that he i think barely completed and he um decided to uh travel to the south of america uh, of the you know the us to seek um, a bit of warmth during our very cold winters so uh, most a lot of quebecers will travel to uh, it's like the Valley of uh, Australia uh, of Australians. It's it's uh, the the Valley of the Can the French Canadians. <clears throat> so they go to Florida, 
um, to spend the winter. So when I was nine years old, um, suddenly I didn't have a dad and he didn't pay child support. And he also never, like, and didn't really see us. Mm, it was just, there was no supervised type visits at the time. But um, over the years, I realized that uh, my dad had done a lot of things that were very um, or illegal towards others, but towards us as well. And um, that we consider illegal and really like punishable by law today. Uh, but it's only by like with working on myself, working on my mental health issues and also learning more about trauma that I realized that <clears throat> I was exposed to things I shouldn't have exposed, been exposed to. Yeah. Uh, but to put that into words, it takes years because um, what, what I'm learning, having retrained in, um, in mental health <clears throat> the last um, two years, uh, trauma lives in your body and uh, it stays with you. And if you don't address it, then you behave in certain ways. You become, you have addictions or you um, have PTSD, complex post-traumatic stress. You can develop that and it comes and go. So I would say that I was oblivious to all that um, because I did not remember everything that as clearly as I do today. Uh, but the um, childhood is, is so precious and so important. It's, it's necessary to protect child, children. And as we do, as our governments do today, it is amazing that children can be protected because we weren't um, in my time in the 80s in Canada. And I believe Australia was also not really up to date with, um, you know, what um, being raised in a single uh, parent family meant, uh, what a separation meant for a child. There was no mental health support, although my mom did all that she could to, she saw there were some issues when I was a teenager, she sent me to a psychiatrist, but honestly, sitting in front of a psychiatrist who says nothing to you, he just goes, mm. Mm. <laughs> like, not yeah. helpful. I didn't yeah. get any, anything. But or, overall, for many years, I, I was saying that my child, I had a good childhood. And I did indeed. My, my mother was so loving. She um, was a, a Catholic. A, she was following um, Jesus, you know, and she was um, just loving Jesus, praying every day and praying for herself, for her safety, because my dad was a little bit scary. <clears throat> and she protected us. And yeah. yeah, we were very poor, though, materially poor. And so um, that affected me quite a lot and so um yeah but overall I did um sports um that I still benefit from today you know exposed to lots of really positive things and I was into art so I was doing visual arts painting drawing and uh, that was my outlet that was a way for me to uh, it's like meditational uh, it was um spend time in a very um uh, internal internalized sort of uh, state where I would concentrate on something and um, on, on a paper and so I was always been uh, naturally prone to um, to be creative in that sense like writing and uh, dr drawing 
so I wrote poetry a lot and I love um, all the you know writing contests and things like that in French it's all in French so I've been in Australia for 20 years now and with all the work I do especially with um, my organization Pink Cross Foundation and I, uh, I we do write a lot and we do speak a lot to people to uh, make the cause better known and understood to, to protect women who are um, trapped in the sex industry or people in general trapped in the sex industry. So I've been writing and reading a lot in the last five years. And I, my level of English is, has um, stepped up quite a lot. And I'd say would be quite equal to my uh, my French, but um, French is, is yeah my first language. And is um, like I, I, I would say that, I have a more poetic way of presenting things in in my native language. Yeah, but I'm getting there with English. Yeah. Well, look, you're doing wonderful, sister. I'm uh, American English, uh, not Australian, so we're both learning this new language, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, you know what I want to say, Jen, is um, thank you so much for sharing that of yourself. Like, look, I am um, we I I missed a disclaimer with you, but because it's unedited and unscripted, one of the things I just want this to be a safe environment for you. So if you want to opt out of any question, just be like, you know, I'd rather not talk about that. Or consequently, um, because this is more of a conversation as well, if you ever want to flip it back on me and ask my perspective or ask my experience or anything like that, um, always feel free. Um, I so much resonate with um, some of the things that you said. My father was absent during a handful of years, and I I know and experience that. And um, for me, one of the things, like it's been a long road to forgiveness, reconciliation, all of those things. Um, And one of the things that I think about is just, you know, now I've got this legacy thing where I get to think about, um, you know, what was what went wrong in in my childhood and what I'd love to rectify uh, to the best of my ability. And, um, you know, I think it's hard to have this conversation where um, we speak truthfully about the past, but we don't um, put out someone or, or speak horribly about them or whatever. So we're really balancing this really, you know, interesting tension. But for yourself, I'd love to know, like, what are some of those things that you um, have learned from the past? Maybe they're out of hurt or whatever, but that you'd like to carry forward with your children. Like, look, I, I want this for them or I don't want this for them, consequently, out of what you've experienced. The last um, year or two, having been through some more um, studies and research on uh, mental health and, um, well, I'm highly interested in the effect of of trauma on on people and I'm lately been, uh, I'm currently studying uh, the effect of addiction on the body and how we become addicted to substances or to behaviours. So what I uh, am, I'm observing with my uh, my children, so um, I have a nine-year-old boy, a seven-year-old girl, and a five-year-old boy. <laughs> and what I realize is um, and what, what I'm hearing uh, about from academics and from uh, literature on um, the at- attachment theory, so uh, how we attach to um, our biological parents has a, a really important impact on um, uh, how we live our life and how we perceive the world. So with um, so with with my the problems that I've experienced uh, growing up uh, and how I became 
a teenager that was uh, angry at men. So basically mm-hmm. that's, that's the words I was using. Mm-hmm. And today I can say that what um, the words I'm using is um, because I'm studying uh, addiction and, and uh, how we compensate from pain. So when pain is experienced, then we we act out and we we develop behaviors that uh, make us feel good and it can be temporary. So with my to come back to your question, so my my children, so what what they're teaching us as well today uh, as parents that's what which we're learning through the primary schools, but also with other parents is they're very uh, strong on, teaching the, the child to accept their feelings. And so it's okay to be angry and it's okay to cry. And we're, we're not just going to shut up <laughs> the child and say, uh, don't cry, it's all right. I've had some casual babysitters and they they say these things. And I'm like, okay, no, that's not going to go very far because this is not how. So I teach the, the, the teenagers. Some, I've had some really young girls and I could, like someone say, oh, don't cry. So, of course, yeah, you, you might be um, you're propelled to say that because, yeah, we don't want the child growing. We want the child to be happy and feel good. But what's really important is to address how we feel. And this is, this is paramount because if we don't, if we don't talk about how we feel, whatever, whatever it is, and if we don't get the secrets out, if there are any secrets, if they're, you know, child abuse and things, it's so important that children feel open and safe to, to talk about um, that. Then, um, yes, it's, yeah, to acknowledge how they feel. So what, that's what I do. That's why I sit down with the children or a child and there's a problem and we, we explore it. But but it comes after years of studying that and not being in the mental health sector at all myself. But I know that as a creative person, I've been uh, myself trying to heal myself through my art. So, yeah, because of the uh, mindfulness aspect of it. And um, and so that that path, that path into led me to uh, want to understand what happened to me what happened to me having spent you know numerous years uh self um inflicting pain on me through going um into prostitution for eight years and having the sort of the the, the calling to talk about it uh, was definitely from from God so God told me yeah, you go out and you talk about it you can't just keep that for us it can't be a secret because mm-hmm. you need to be a light in darkness and so I, I've been exploring um, my pain and I with, with my children now really trying to uh, for them to acknowledge their emotions because I think that's what I'm I missed as well mm-hmm. is that uh, I had certain feelings about um my dad having left, no one was available for me to talk about it or school psychologists, yeah, yeah. parents that were separated. There was not much support. You just have to put up with it. There's, there wasn't even government um, you know, structures to chase the dad and chase the child support. Mm-hmm. And if he's not there, if you don't want to hear from, from him anymore, which I know we can do today, government will pay you the child support that the dad's supposed to pay. So that's pretty amazing that Australia is able to see that more than 50% of marriages end up in divorce and that 
sometimes there's a need for this. And so that affected me so much when I was, um, you know, a, a young child just before becoming a teenager. And so I try, I really try for my uh, children to grow up in a healthy environment, but it's, it's for every family, you know, raising children is not, is not easy. It's a challenge, but as long as we seek help and um, seek knowledge and understanding and improving, and then we're on the right track. Yeah, no doubt. And look, for so many people, um, I resonate with what you say. It's like, um, if we never deal with the hurt, the trauma, the secrets, right, it just gets suppressed. And then it's like a cancer. Like we just walk around like walking wounded people with an internal cancer that we just never seek to um, uh, uh, get fixed or get healed. And and if we don't have that awareness, then um, we're operating out of a headspace and a mindset that is still in bondage uh, to ourselves, to our experiences, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, yeah, I just want to yes and amen all of that that you're saying. And I'm thankful that you've gone through the work because your, your desires to be liberated, to be set free, uh, for yourself and for your loved ones. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I would love to know, look, um, you, you said that as a bit of an aside, but um, you were uh, involved in um, a, an area of prostitution for eight years. Um, and that doesn't come lightly. That's not a lot of our experience. Um, would you be able to tell me, I guess, how you make sense of how you ended up there? Or, or you know, was that the short-term... Um, uh, fix or the thing that you know you you said felt good at the time or how do you I guess make sense of that for yourself how did you how did you end up there I was very angry at men I knew I couldn't trust men my father had abandoned uh, us and literally abandoned us like he was not there he was not paying child support so I was a um I guess a teenager about 12 13 years old and uh, I didn't have enough money my mom didn't have enough to buy clothes um, that I wanted which was just perhaps what was in fashion at the time and I really wanted to buy a specific outfit it was just something very basic but sure. I really wanted it so I had to during the summer I went and, and worked um, and, and that's not prostitution at all at that age I started prostitution at 30 at 27 years old so I'm just talking about my quest for uh, just having some material, a, a bit more material abundance, you know. And um, so I went and picked up, I picked uh, some fruit. So fruit picking during summer, the local teenagers were doing this and we could earn some money. And so I went um, strawberry picking, which is common near my region. And um, so Saint-Anne-des-Plaines, so that was a sort of a... Um, yeah, country, country town where there were fields of strawberries and the bus picking me up was like the American type orange bus we don't have in Australia. <laughs> I wish you have to drive your children to school. I wish there were buses picking up your children at uh, government schools. That's not the case. <laughs> yeah, so even for like uh, fruit picking, the farmers would organize buses and then pick up uh teenagers and so I went there and I got myself so sick working there because you had to wake at, you know five in the morning mm. and I worked so hard to 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 get the money that I wanted which uh perhaps in uh, 1984 was about five to six hundred dollars for a whole summer 
Yeah, wow. working and uh, yeah. I became uh, I had um so I forgot I forgot the term I need to, to check what it is so uh gland oh yeah glandular fever I constantly forget the term um glandular fever and so yeah. I had to stop uh working I had to stop gymnastics training which I loved because mm. I was really weak and my white cell count was really um bad and uh I had these blood tests and I became, I started having a phobia about um, needles at that time. And I still carry that today. So it's like a mental thing and I should not have that. And I don't want it because you get to have blood uh, tests very regularly. These days for also saying when you have children's the same. So I developed this phobia and phobias is, you can change that, but it's a very uh, strong mental a twisting of your um, perceptions. Mm. And so, yeah, I fainted when I had my first um, blood test there uh, for this glandular fever. And um, then I try to go back to picking fruit, uh, strawberries during the summer to make money, try to go back to my gymnastics training. And it lasted for months and months. And, um, you know, later... That's I stopped, you know, I, I may have purchased my uh, fashionable cloak, type of cloak I wanted. And I went on to my, uh, my high school studies. And um, then I went to university, so studied uh, in philosophy and I studied in uh, visual arts, completed that. It took a while. I'm really poor in Montreal, moved to Montreal. It took a while to... And finish it but I'm not a one who quits so and um yeah being poor like really materially poor wanting to study wanting to learn um always have a, a thirst for knowledge and understanding the world and understanding um to, to make my mark as well like by creating you try to uh, exhibit in um, galleries and have your artwork presented and it's very competitive competitive uh, it's not uh, what didn't come easily to me some of the things I exhibited were um, video art installation and that seemed to be my thing it worked well uh, and I had some exhibitions with group and uh, uh, one or two uh, solo ones uh, but you can't really make a living out of that um, it's a day-to-day -day income so you could become a teacher and um, so again it's pretty hard and um, so to answer your question, um, what led me to prostitution? It's not something I thought about at all at this time, but when you you fall into this world, so you you're exposed to um, not to the to the thought of it from time to time, and um, it may lead you if you um, have all the risk factors of entry into prostitution, as um, academic literature tells us. Um, there's um, eight main risk factors of entry into prostitution. And when I left this world in 2010, in Australia, I had been in Australia 10 years already, uh, I, um, I, I thought, what have I done? Why did I get into this? <laughs> Why is it a secret? <laughs> because it was. <laughs> it, I hadn't, I, that year I started telling people about it and slowly. Uh, and so what, what had happened is that um, I was confused with my sexual identity. Uh, I was looking for answers and I um, well, I was very angry at men, so I, be, I, I became... Um, 
was very promiscuous with men. So I would just, um, maybe not in my teenage years, but um, I, I was, I thought I was bisexual. So I would hang out in the gay community and, um, and then I had relationships with, with women that were long-term, so two, two years relationship with women. But what I realized is that relationships are not easy. It's not as a man or a woman. It's not easy. It's even friendships. You need to to work at yourself, to work at at, um, the relationship. Marriages are not easy. And um, I thought, well, it seems that this is not my answer to my my anger to, to men. I need to. Uh, being gay wasn't making me happier mm-hmm. in a way. Um, so, and I also um, had experience, um, you know, I was, had been uh, in sexual relationships with, with men since I was six, 16 years old, which even in Christian circles, I mean, we can't be um, putting our ha- head in the sand thinking that our young teenagers will not go and have sex even though they're Christians and we told them to not have sex before marriage because it does happen. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wasn't necessarily in a Christian setting, but a 16-year-old, I had a a boy, my first boyfriend, and it was a good relationship. I had a first sexual relationship that was very respectful and safe and and nice. Uh, But because of my internalized anger, so I went on and... um, and numerous uh, one night stands with men. I had a f- um, yeah some some also casual relationships with with women, um, and all in all the risk factors of entry into prostitution. Um, there is one that can be uh, the sexual addiction part, which I think I was uh, leading leaning towards, and. Um, reading about this today coming across a lot of um, academic literature and research on sexual addiction sexual addiction can be um, um self self-harm to to self and that that was it to me that was the answer and i knew that that was what i did to myself mm-hmm. and that's what happens with um with many people uh, they may have um sexual uh, experiences that are uh, unhealthy or immoral in our <laughs> circles and I say was sinful sure. um, but um, it's really it can it can be that it can be self-harm if it's not um, you know in a healthy co- context I mean no sexual addictions <laughs> healthy context but I yeah. guess yeah um, so can I, but oh, yeah. go ahead I was just, I'm trying to make sense of this. Like, I, I thank you so much for going here. And I, I'm trying to understand there's like multiple things happening for me in my brain. It's like, in one sense, um, you've grown up poor and you want, um, you know, some material possessions and things that, you know, you're li- allowed to just enjoy, right? So there's that. There's an unhealthy or um, anger towards your father that's maybe mapped on towards men in general. There's a kind of uh, curiosity and understanding of where your sexuality is. And then you mentioned addiction now as self-harm. And so I'm trying to make sense of like, if I'm paraphrasing or trying to kind of catch up, is it that you think that, um, you know, I want some of these worldly things, rightly or wrongly, I want some of these things, Um, Men are a vehicle and vessel that I can use to maybe get those things, 
um, but I'm I'm also validating a, a like a hurt or something like that at a core level, and so I keep doing it to myself. Like I don't mean to map that onto your reality, but I'm trying to kind of pull some of these threads together. And does any of that resonate, or does any of that make sense? Or mm -hmm. yes. <clears throat> What, so what I was <clears throat> trying to complete um, explaining uh, was that uh, I want to talk about this because I'm researching addiction. I'm highly interested in why men use pornography. Mostly men, there's many mm -hmm. women that do uh, as well. So I've, I've been studying addiction. I came across this, which applied to my life and my own uh, and applies well to my own recovery from trauma and uh, how I want to, to frame this is that um, I've, I've uh, done interviews in the past where um, I've, I've come to express this or even um, talking to people and, and explaining how um, I was a sex addict and I, uh, that's what made me fall into prostitution. But it gets conflated with the real causes of um, women, mostly women, uh, entering, um, falling into prostitution, the prostitution lifestyle. And so sexual addiction is not what will make women fall into, uh, most, most of the time, there's a really low percentage of those that will um, enter prostitution because of that reason. The main risk factors, and uh, the number one is poverty, is, is, um, is, uh, is financial um poverty so there's a, a desire to um pay your debts most probably that's the first thing so women will not go into prostitution because of um just just for fun and there's always like, things in the back that that and propels them to fall into risk we'll call them risk factors and uh my number one <laughs> risk factor was the fact that um, you know, I, I wanted to study. And so I had a, a massive university debt and I thought, you know, I can't begin in life with the debt. Um, I had to pay about 55,000 Canadian dollars 20 years ago. And, um, and I was, uh, I had completed uh, my master's so graduate diploma in multimedia here in Melbourne at Monash University. And I came here on a scholarship from um, the University of Quebec in Montreal. Um, so I was, I was there doing a master's by research in interactive media. So using videos, using graphics and sound design, which um, I was passionate about. And I, I did, um, yeah, I did complete. And um, just like any, in any field, it was a competitive world. I was new to Australia and I was not, a local <laughs> so it takes a while to um, become somehow to merge well integrate well in the in the local um, you know business world I'd say because I was trying applying on jobs and so right after my one year um, scholarship um, it was well, my studies were paid but it was still seven thousand per semester because I was an international student and I, I, I had had some government um, grants from Canada so um so not grant but um loan yeah so um 
you know, because I was exposed to the idea of prostitution because of my father also being absent. So there's another risk factor. So your family of origin, usually uh, abandonment from a, from a parent um, makes, um, that's one risk factor where women enter prostitution. And so um, other risk factors are um, um, maybe a, a drug, drug addiction, which was not my case. Um, so there's, there's all these risk factors, but isolation. So is, is one another one. So you have cases in in human sexual trafficking, uh, which we hear about, which a lot of people work for and raise funds for, and it's an amazing cause because it goes to the core of like a, a man pimping a, a woman and um, selling her everywhere, and. Um, so what the pimps do, and I'm talking about that because um, in a way, coming to Australia and not being with my family and my networks of friends, then um, the, 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 set, the setting uh, pimped my, I pimped myself, not that I did that, but the context did that. Um, our governments did that because prostitution was legal, is legal. And so that really throws vulnerable women into this system and you you stay in it because you're sitting in nice lounges and couch, you know with couches and music and you wait for the men to come in and you've got this sort of fake safety uh, of being uh, within you know uh, four walls and it's legal to do that and so um Vulnerability and, and isolation. So I was isolated. I didn't speak the language. And pimps would do that. And I didn't do I just discovered this legal setting here and I just decided to go. I decided, but we say that women have all the risk factors behind them and they will make that choice of going into prostitution, but it never is a choice. Never. And I, I, I'm not going to be, you know, I don't know who are going to be your listeners, but... Um, you know, I have an idea, but most people who listen to this already have a good idea of um, perhaps, uh, you know, how women should should protect themselves and what what prostitution is or sh- and isn't, or should and should be shouldn't be, but in some other contexts. Well, I'm not sure you have listeners from from this background, but I hope so. But we need to understand that women will not fall into prostitution um, because of their own choice. It looks like a choice. The media tells us it's a choice. News.com, like it's awful. They, they publish awful stories about empowerment into prostitution. It's far from that. It is not that. It has destroyed me and it has uh, created such difficult mental health issues to recover from. Um, and I think there's more and more people becoming um verbal about the impact and the hurts that men and women the buyers and the supplies of the women who are in there uh experience and the, the damage it does to our communities and um so this this is uh many many uh, risk factors that led me to to enter this world and the legal aspects and um, made me stay in it and i'm not saying that uh, other contexts. So there's it's, it's a long story. We can talk about that a bit later. 
But um, being legal doesn't mean it's good and doesn't mean the women are safe. It never is. Prohibition, just like uh, uh, what uh, we've seen with the alcohol industry, historically, you know, um, many, many years, 50 or 100 years ago, did not work. And now we have <laughs> bottle shops everywhere. People are free to buy alcohol, yeah, if they're under 80. So we we are at the um, beginning of the discussion on what what is good in, you know, in a sexual consent. What is sexual consent? Why why do we have legal prostitution? Why do men? How how why are they free to buy women? And uh, yeah, we, we're many organizations and individuals like myself. We we talk to the government. We tell them. We speak publicly about this because. And it is, we are the forgotten people. Like people don't care about prostituted women, really. Um, they they think that um, they're, you know, desperate drug addicts who just do that to pay their bills. But, you know, we need to take care of the poor. The, 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 we were poor. We are the vulnerable. And I think God has uh, just, you know, called me, talked to me really strongly about, the, the need to 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 be you know, verbal about what happened and to understand better all of it and um yeah it's it's very um very secretive world it's very difficult to talk about all these topics especially sexuality and um it is also very prominent in the in our christian context because uh, this is where we use the the bible language and the church language but we need to be aware that we have amazing governments that give us, you know, social services that are really supportive of, um, you know, recovery in many aspects, the NDIA and what they do. And so when people have mental health issues relating to sex um, addiction or pornography addiction, or if they have been trapped in uh, the prostitution uh, industry, which sadly, yeah, is pretty big and a wealthy industry, then there, there's a need to talk about about that. Um, and uh, there's a discomfort, and that's why it's important to to keep talking about it. Yeah, thank you so much, Jen. You know, so much of what I'm hearing is, um, and it almost sounds like, unfortunately, you've had to create a defense for um, what you've experienced. And I, <clears throat> in no way, and I hope my listeners would not do that, there is not... Um, judgment coming at you for any kind of past. I, I just look at a lot of that um, world and my experiences, um, someone who's used my sexuality in unhealthy ways <clears throat> as a brokenness. You know, it's a, um, it's a lostness or it's a brokenness and it's not uh, meant to be condemned. It's just, man, I, I'm trying to find a better way. And um, at some point in time, uh, and, and for me, that was the light of Christ, like showing me some of the things that were broken and hurt in my life. And I'd love to know for you, like, where was that? Where was that beacon of hope? Where was that light? Where was God in the midst of, you know, a lostness or um, and, and what did that process look like for you? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'll be very uh, specific with you and I can... Um... Still kept the book where um, I read the uh, the verse that really changed a lot of things for me. That was um, 
um, Luke um, 11, 9, 11, and Matthew as well, has the same. Um, so Matthew as well talks about, about that. But to me, having, not having a, a father, mm -hmm. um, there's a small book called Too Busy Not to Pray uh, that my uh, friend who <laughs> reached out to me um, at university gave me. And um, so in my language, I was telling her how when I arrived in Australia, so I was a, a um, student in um, multimedia and I was telling her, I remember that and I remember that after and I thought oh, from a Christian woman, I, she would have thought that I was uh, really full on. <laughs> I had begun prostitution and I didn't tell her, obviously didn't tell anyone. Um but yeah, I was telling her about um, how like sex, <laughs> and uh, she kept giving me these these books, and uh, she invited me to do the Alpha course, and um, and so one day I picked up the book, you know, in my little student home in Glen Huntley. I was the only Caucasian. There was nine Asian men and women <laughs> going to study at uni, and uh. Yeah, that was a, an interesting experience. So, yeah, yeah I'm a later married an Asian. <laughs> so um, I picked up the book and, um, you know, I, I had started in prostitution and um, she knew I was busy. So this book is from Bill Hybels. It says, too busy not to pray, slowing down to be with God. And at page 26, Matthew 7, 9, 11. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? So in my head, I didn't have a dad. And he did not put anything on my table. Like it's, he didn't even put a snake on my table instead of a fish. Like he did the first few years. And then he thought, oh, not worth it. There's worse children than you. Um, me or mom will take care of you. Uh, so the verse says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so I thought, all right, if uh, you're real God, then um, you'll be my father from now on. That's it. Deal done. <laughs> so, anyway, no, I didn't go this way but I, I cried I cried for about an hour heavy sobs uh, in my little bedroom um and um yeah I, I got like really uh the Holy Spirit really yeah came to my heart then uh, into my heart and um and was with me all the way um until I exited prostitution and so um that was that was you know the Holy Spirit in you know the encounter in my heart, mm -hmm. uh, but just like negative exposure to things. So that's you know I think research tells us that um, also it takes about eight to eleven or twelve exposure to the Word of God to um, accept God and follow His, his ways, and so. Um, it took me numerous exposures like this, but that was a moment where I really felt that uh, there was a, a more important 
decision that was made uh, spiritually in my heart and um and so what happened is that I I still had this girlfriend at university and she's a thriving um uh, writer and uh, marketing specialist now and uh, she's done her job she's just outreach to me you know and uh, then other people in her circles are there uh outreach and uh, support me um as a, a lost soul <laughs> as i was um starting to appear with uh, but they didn't know me so they didn't know but my family or my friends would have known um started to uh come up with um you know, flash clothes, you know, that when you've got more money, you can buy. Uh, so I was in prostitution. And, um, and then because you you make your money from your looks, then you also do what we call out calls. So I would go and, and meet up with men um, outside of the time in the brothel. And uh, that's why you need to have the right clothing and you need to be looking business professional um which you know I never had money like <laughs> need to realize that uh I was just finishing uni and um so but I told them well I have a business I'm do graphic and web design and so yeah I've got my clients and I I didn't justify buying clothes or anything but from being a uni uh, student to having these um you know flashy um dresses because that's the expectation in Australia that women will be looking like uh, I was told one real women because I wasn't lady enough for then in my Canadian French Canadian ways and very low key. Um, so yeah, there's this expectation in Australia. I just really dislike it. But and then so yeah, my the friends uh, of my university girlfriend June Stewart. Her name is now June was. Um, yeah, introduced me to people who ran the alpha course. And so I did the, the alpha course, um, but I still really wasn't that convinced about going to church, for example. And, but there yeah, we went and did some church uh, hopping and shopping with them because they knew that I had a specific idea of what church could be for me. And I didn't connect with certain types of churches and uh one day I really connected with um the messages and the feel of the uh, the crossway baptist church and so I started um attending there and that's where I grew as a believer um, and I uh, I'm really grateful for all my experiences there and uh, all the people I've learned to walk the christian life you know with with the people um at Crossway, the pastors that were there, the founder was still there, Stuart Robinson, and mm. and I, I worked briefly with them as well. Um, it was my first job out of prostitution. They didn't know that, mm. <laughs> but um, I worked in the graphic design team, and that was mm. such an achievement for me because quitting prostitution and having a mainstream job is is very tough, and it's I see it now with the women I work with in okay. uh, at Pink Cross. Um, they're trying to exit we offer transition services so we we help them you know transition out of the sex industry and i i see i see it uh the pride and the how the context is different how we interact with others is different it's a culture like of course every workplace has a culture but this 
sort of fake workplace that prostitution is because it never is, never will be work, never will be a job because being uh, sexually violated is not a job. And so there's the mainstream media talk about that. They want prostitution to be a job. They lobby for this. So we, we're facing a very strong lobby there. And um, so that's how I uh, I grew as a as a believer. And um, yeah, I was very very critical of uh, yeah when I arrived at the at the church as well because um, I I studied in in art as I mentioned and um, what we do in art and what we're very good at and maybe it's the French culture as well. We're very very critical. We're very critical. So we constantly complain about things. <laughs> So I learned. So it's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. I meet French people a lot, and uh, my yeah, my children attend the French uh, school, and you know, I see um, new like French from Europe arriving, and um, there's 60 million people in France. Like it's there's a lot, a lot of people, and uh, I guess people have become detached from, um, yeah, just the fate like what I realized that at becoming a Christian I became someone really uh, opened uh, caring listen to others I change a lot Uh, I can can ask questions and you you do your interviews and it's this is the prime example of listening to others listening to people's stories and it's so important and um, so I realized that um, yeah I was very critical and so I was criticizing their passion so this pastor was really passionate and he was he sounded almost angry and and I thought I was taking notes (laughs) writing on paper and I was going to submit a paper about how church wasn't for me or something like that (laughs) but um yeah the message and the the word of God captured me and I I stayed there I was a bit reluctant I didn't want to be there really but um people people are so caring and so friendly and um for someone with my past my trauma and anyone with past of trauma it can be difficult to attach to others and I can see it with the relation the friendships I've developed there I had issues with uh, attachment and it's something that um I'm I'm still I'm still studying right now we're we're in recovery all our lives. So it's, you know, we're getting better and we're, we're changing and um, being um, yeah, learning to interact in a healthy way with others is a lifelong process. And it's especially right. difficult for those recovering from trauma. It can be any type of um, yeah, other traumas for, um, for sexual abuse survivors. Yeah, of course. Jen, thank you so much. Um, we're kind of we're coming to the end of our time together, but uh, you know the one thing that one of the things that's just on deck that we haven't really talked about is is um, Pink Cross, and we'd just love to know um, what is your vision and how can people help support that. Oh, the vision has been established for um, eight years already. And um, because of this uh, mainstream um, idea that um, prostitution is okay, then we have not had government support. And um, so my my vision is that there'll be a, a flooding of people joining in, volunteering uh, in leadership roles to then um, you know, manage 
uh, other other volunteers one on one because my time is so stretched. Like it's, I just really struggle to manage one volunteer one at a time. So I think my vision is to to have real like a uh, yeah leaders coming in joining in because. Uh, I'm not paid that much with the work of Pink Cross and I, I work 50 hours a week. Uh, I, you know, pushing the idea of doing interviews. It's my first in a long time, but um, I, I have done a lot of writing and, and uh, just planning as well and building um, sustainable um, source of income as well for Pink Cross. I'm working on a side uh, project to bring uh, more money to the charity. Uh, we have admin uh, support, but the best way for, for people to to join the movement is to check out our web. Our website has heaps of information. Um, Counselors, people um, studying uh, mental health, be interested in the, the work we do. And um, there's a number of roles that are listed there available for um, yeah to um, to apply on and um, and take part in our uh, organization. Uh, we have roles on the board. So people can join um, to um, make governance decisions with me. And uh, we have, um, yeah, so we're looking for a property at the moment to operate from. A commercial property is a very important need. Uh, and we haven't found because we um, just rely on financial donations. And um, if I don't get, if, if there's not enough money in the account, I don't get paid, basically. Uh, and I'm just paid three hours a week, but I do work full time. This, And um, so we were looking for um, people who have skills in counseling, social work. That's very important. Um, need to appoint someone as a uh, support worker to support the women in our uh, eight week smart program. So we support the women over eight weeks. And uh, we support men as well. So those who have knowledge in, um, in addiction as well, we're developing our um, addiction recovery programs. And um, so, yeah, there's uh, plenty of opportunities. We have um, a research um, project as well, an R&D think tank, we call it. Uh, so I'm working with a, a researcher and we're, we're writing uh, academic uh, papers. And um, so need writers. And I need... Um, what, what I think I need most at the moment to help me with the <laughs> overload of uh, admin work is a um, an admin assistant. So it'll be a two-day-a-week uh, volunteer role. And um, I've got the – I think the job is posted on the, on the website. So that will help everything flow really well. But mostly we need prayerful people that will – um, pray for us and impact and help me to uh, manage the demand. <laughs> So good, Jen. Um, do you mind? I don't do this often, but do you mind if I close our time together in prayer? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Father God, I um, I thank you that you are the good father. I thank you that uh, for Jen and myself, as we've grow up, grown up with um, a fragmented idea of what fatherhood might be, uh, an incomplete idea, you are the perfect and full and true father um, that gives us good gifts, that gives us your spirit, that gives us love and acceptance and belonging. Um, you give us a new path. You give us new life. Um, thank you so much, Father, for that. I pray for um, Jen's ministry. I pray and ask, Lord, that you would continue to use her in mighty ways to um, help women uh, to know um, their worth in this world, um, that they might be set free uh, in their minds and in their bodies. And Father, I just um, pray for anyone listening here and now, uh, if they're convicted of areas of sexual sin, Lord, I pray that they would turn to you knowing that you're good, knowing that you love them, knowing that you know where they are in this current space and in this current time. 
And would you use uh, your light, your love, um, your uh, acceptance of them uh, to, to help them um, in a new way of life? And men as well, Father, we know there are so many that are bound uh, to addiction. Uh, those uh, we, we just know that there is such a lostness, such a brokenness in this world. Um, under the area of sexuality, Father. So I pray you would help us to have a, a good and healthy and loving lens across that and to help each other to continue to communicate with one another uh, in love and kindness and grace and in patience um, to help each other along this journey. So we pray this, Father, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Jen, I might just um, hit pause on the recording or stop on the recording for our time and then just do a little bit of small talk with you, if that's all right. Sure. Thank you. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening today. If you found this episode helpful, please do share it with a friend. We want others to uh, embrace this unscripted life, this uh, life apart from promotion or perfection, but honesty and purity and love. So until we catch up again, let's consider how we may spur each other on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging each other as we see the day approaching. Love you guys. Peace.